<laughs> All right, let's begin with a word of prayer. All right, are you good? Okay. Oh Lord, my creator, redeemer, and comforter, as we come to you in spirit and in truth, we humbly pray that you would open our hearts to the preaching of your word so that we may repent of our sins, believe in Jesus Christ as our only Savior, and grow in grace and holiness. Hear us for the sake of his name. Amen. Amen. All right. So um, it's been almost a month, actually, since we have gathered here for this. We had the um, movie a couple weeks ago um, and then two weeks off while I was traveling. So we are uh, back to what we were talking about before in our larger discussion of worship but now specifically going through the divine service, which is kind of our main service that we do together on Sundays. And what we've gone through so far was from the invocation all the way up to the readings. So that's how far we had covered before. So we're going to pick that back up today. And in the um, so if you're in the Lutheranism 101 book, if you are kind of following along with that, which it, we're not exactly, which is fine. It doesn't matter if you have it or not. That's page 192. And then in the hymnal, which I do encourage you to follow along in, that'll be page 190. Um, actually, randomly similar page numbers. So uh, 190 in the hymnal and 192 in Lutheranism 101, if you want to have either of those open. So we already talked about the readings, but... Uh, kind of by way of review to get us back into it, I remembered something that I wanted to say about the readings that I didn't say before. And in it, uh, trying to be very practical when we're going through the divine service about what's happening when and why, and why the pastor is doing what the pastor is doing, and the people are doing what the people are doing, and so on and so forth, um, I wanted to bring up something about the readings. And that is where they're done. So this is a, a little bit interesting uh, liturgical history. So traditionally in a Lutheran church, this the main center point of everything is the altar, right? So if this is the, the back wall, um, this this is the altar. And, you know, you know, I have a cross here, whatever, um, and maybe a couple candles. But... Um, little candles. Um, normally, the main focus point of a Lutheran church is the altar because from the altar comes come God's gifts, right? Uh, they come, the, we got the cup and we got the host, right? This is the, the gifts of God coming from the altar. Uh, that's what's, what's in the center. And then also the other main focus point, the other absolutely necessary thing, in a Lutheran chancel, okay, so in a sanctuary, right? So if this is our sanctuary, um, you have maybe a narthex back here where people enter uh, doors. We don't really have a narthex in our sanctuary because we have our narthex is really actually this area out here, if you will. Um, and then you have the, the place where the people sit and the pews. And then you have this area up front where the, alt, where the altar is, and this is called the chancel. Right, so this this area here, this is the narthex, like we said. Um, this is the nave, 
where people sit, and then this is the chancel area, if you will. Okay. So the main thing is the altar, but then the other main thing in a Lutheran sanctuary is a pulpit. And these two places, the pulpit and the altar, those are the places where God's gifts come from. Now, you might have other things, right? You might have, as we have, um, maybe a credence table over here. You might have some seats, right, um, as we have, and, and uh, maybe a flower stand, right, something like that. You might have other things to beautify the chancel, but the two focal points, the two main things, are the altar and the pulpit, okay? And uh, that's, if you think about the phrase we often use to talk about the gifts of God and the, the kind of ministry that Lutherans do, what's the phrase? Word and sacrament ministry, right? So what is this? Word and sacrament. The other thing every Lutheran church is going to have is some sort of baptismal font, right? So uh, ours is here. Some people's is back here. Some people's is over here. It, it kind of depends. That That's something that's varied in a lot of Lutheran churches. Um, but you're going to have prominently in the sanctuary, this whole thing's the sanctuary, you're going to have word and sacrament as the focus points. Okay? Now, um, a couple things I want to say about that is, um, well, let, let's start with our topic at hand, and that's the readings. Where are the readings done? Now, traditionally, Lutheran churches um, actually didn't never had what are called lecterns. Um, so, uh, if you remember this this piece of uh, this podium here, um, used to be in the sanctuary and used to be down here. Um, and when lecterns got added in, the, the, the use of lecterns was, if you remember what we had talked about a while back with matins and vespers and prayer services, prayer services were done throughout the week in a lot of churches, especially if maybe they had a school or something. The lecterns were the place where the, those readings and maybe even the sermon would be done for those smaller prayer offices. It's a little more intimate, right? A little closer to the people um, and just more of a teaching type of setting, if you will, almost more like a Bible study in the sanctuary than a full-out divine service. As those services kind of went away in the history of American Lutheranism and people stopped having weekday services, people kept their lecterns and put them in the chancel and then it kind of became the place of the readings for the divine service. Now, um, to save space, we actually switched that a couple years ago here and, and took that lectern out and actually use it here as a teaching podium, which is good. I like it because um, the, the old teaching podium was falling apart, um, for one. And we started doing the readings in the traditional place that they were done for many centuries, which is from the altar. Uh, because again, the readings are part of this gift of God. The readings are part of the word and sacrament ministry. And specifically, not just uh, from any place in the altar, but from these corners of the altar. And if you remember back to your Old Testament history, uh, what are on the corners of the altar? Does anyone remember what they're called? Chairs? Corbs. Yeah, um, the, 
yeah, there, there were cherubs on the altar, but horns. Yeah, they're horns of the altar. Um, there were four horns on the altar. And um, basically in the Old Testament, one of the places that priests would go for safety is they would go and grab onto the horns of the altar. Right? And it's symbolic of that they're grabbing onto Jesus. Right? They're grabbing onto God for safety. And if someone, if someone was grabbing onto the horns of the altar, that meant you were not allowed to take their life. You were not allowed to kill them. Right? It was a place of life and safety and refuge. And so symbolically, uh, really from the early church on, readings were done from the different horns of the altar. Um, and even though they, these aren't Old Testament altars anymore with literal horns, the idea is that the, you go to God's word for refuge. You go to God's word for safety. And so when we read God's word from the horns uh, or from the corners of the altar, it's symbolic that God's word is the place where you have safety in life. Okay. Now, um, what the early church and medieval church did is they assigned the different horns uh, different uh, names, if you will. And this is kind of like stage right and stage left if you've ever been in plays or, or musicals, right? So um, it's basically just a way to describe which side of the altar you're on. And then also whenever um, pastors discuss how to plan a service, we'll say you go to this or that side um, of the chancel. So looking at it from this view that we are here, uh, this from facing the altar, the right side, but if you're facing from the altar, the left side, is the um, the epistle horn of the altar. And then the if you're facing from the altar, facing the congregation, um, the right side is the gospel horn. So again, it's kind of like stage right and stage left. The right is the, it's from when you're in the chancel and you're facing out. You're kind of right and left. Now um, – as we talked about last week, or well, it's not last week, last time we were doing this, uh, the gospel, remember, gets kind of a special privilege among the readings. The service is based around the gospel reading. The epistle and the Old Testament readings are chosen based on what the gospel reading is. We stand for the gospel. We don't stand for the epistle, right? Um, so in this way, the um, epistle reading, Old Testament, and Psalm and everything are done from the epistle side, and the gospel is done from the gospel side unless we have a gospel procession, which is um, on special feast days to elevate the gospel even more. Uh, but if you uh, think about that, it kind of makes sense because the liturgically and then um, if you kind of think about it just in the Bible and, and general theme of human living, I guess, is that the right side of something is always the kind of elevated side, right? So most people are right-handed. Um, God, when he sorts the sheep and the goats, right, he puts the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And um, the uh, idea of being someone at someone's right hand, right, God's mighty right arm, the Bible sometimes uses this language, is that the right is always kind of the dominant side, or the special side. And so that's why the the right side is um, the the gospel side, if you will. Why so, you say it's closest to the pulpit? Yeah, and, and well, and traditionally the pulpit is on the uh, gospel side as well, which actually, by the way, this is an interesting fact. 
is that most church, most LCMS churches throughout history, for whatever reason, have, have switched that around. So most LCMS churches you go to now, like I'd say probably 80%, 75% maybe, have the pulpit on the epistle side. But traditionally, it was always on the gospel side. And I was kind of shocked, honestly, when I got here and the pulpit was on the gospel side. I mean, it's not like the most uncommon thing. It is still relatively common. Like I said, probably 75, 25. But I was surprised and happy that it was on the right side. Um, right meaning two things there. <laughs> That's, yeah. It's probably one of those any opera things where you know, it's not. Yeah, of course. And these are, uh, yeah, adiaphora meaning not commanded or forbidden in the scripture. And of course, none of these things are. Um, commanded or forbidden in scripture, but they are developed through church history um, as a way of teaching. And you will notice too, like there is scriptural precedent for it. So the idea of uh, an altar having horns is a biblical idea, right? And if you go and you read in um, you know Exodus and Leviticus about the setting up of the tabernacle or in First uh, and Second Samuel about the setting up of the temple, God does care about the details, right? So sometimes people say this, that uh, why do you care about all these little liturgical details, which on one hand, I, do, I totally understand. On the other hand, the Bible spends a lot of time talking about liturgical details in the Old Testament, right? Um, we have more freedom in the New Testament, but it's, that doesn't mean that the details don't matter. Yeah. Yeah. I had a comment about uh, Luther. It seems like I've always heard that he was in the middle of the nave area up on the wall where he could, because there was no sound systems or anything. He yeah. Was closer to the people. So if you go to Gothic, right. So if you go to Gothic churches, um, more medieval style churches, uh, one of the things, so the early church worshipped in much smaller spaces, but. And when churches got bigger, most of and, – and we still have it to some degree today, even in our church. The pulpit would be elevated um, for the sake of projection. And so you can go to older churches um, or bigger churches, and you can see these pulpits that are – you have to go up a staircase to get to. Yeah. You, you've probably all seen this, yeah. So the church I did my field work in had a, had a pulpit like that. Um, but – uh, yeah, since the advent of more modern uh, technology with microphones, um, that became a little less needed. And so now our pulpit is elevated, right? So it's up on the chancel step, steps, and it is even has a platform above that as well. Also, the, the, the back of the, behind the altar, they have this huge wooden structure that would bounce the sound back. Yeah, the right. Yeah, so they they did design things acoustically, right? Where more modern churches aren't as much because speakers. Yeah, so. Pastor, uh-huh. uh, in your diagram of the author, yes. does where the book stand or where you put the Bible or your... Right. You move that sometimes. Yeah, so the it's called a missile stand because traditionally that book is called a missile. And um, yeah, so I move it during communion. Um, and there's not really significance 
the so when I move it, it's so that whenever I take the bursen veil down from the um, chalice and put that to the side, I, I put that over to the right, and then I move that. Uh, it just feels natural, honestly. But it, it doesn't. Know, I thought that would really sound significant. Yeah. Because when you do it, you kind of do it. And I don't mean that. Oh. And I don't mean a big theatrical thing, but it's more than just. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's like there is a significance. Or yeah, I would I would file it under local custom. To me, it makes sense to set it up that way. Um, and I'm trying to do it reverently. But there's no there's no uh, historical significance. But but these things are local custom. Yeah. Yeah. Things it just makes it that much more. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Reverence covers a, a multitude of liturgical heirs. So, um, what else was I going to say about this? Oh yeah. So as back to the right and left thing and the gospel and epistle side. Um, one of the things you'll notice uh, in this in the service, if you pay attention, is um, I, I don't always do this perfectly. But I do, I do try. That generally, I try and move. Um, there's a. There, I, I was taught this in liturgics, and I, again, I don't do it perfectly. But you're you're generally supposed to pass to the right of things, and then um, turn to your right. And, and there's a. So there's a pattern here. So. Um, Again, just trying to to make things. Again, this gets really detailed, but again, the idea is that um, we're doing everything that we are as reverently as possible. And if the right gets the, if the right, if you have this idea of right over left liturgically, then we're going to apply that a lot of places. So one of the places is um, traditionally when people fold their hands, uh, Lutherans and uh, this goes back. This is kind of connected to like making the sign of the cross. Um, the right thumb will go over the left, right? Whether or not the rest of your fingers are crossed, um, most people put their right thumb over their left, and um, that's the way that they teach us in in seminary. Is you put your you put your right whenever you fold your hands, you put your right thumb over your left. Now that again, that seems like a silly thing, and it doesn't it doesn't really matter, right? God's not looking down and judging you for if your right hand is over your, your right thumb's over your left, but again. Um, these things do have a beauty to them when we're all doing things kind of the same way and we're trying to be as reverent as possible because we recognize we're in the presence of God. The um, other thing is we'll pass to the right of things. So um, normally when I come up, when we come up the the way here, um, we pass to the right of the baptismal font and then on the way back out to the right of the baptismal font. Um, which sometimes I don't always do, and the acolytes and elders don't always do either, which is fine. It doesn't really matter. But um, we're going to be watching. Yeah. Yeah. I always go to the right because I have to light on that side. Yeah. I didn't. And nor- normally the ca- yeah traditionally candles are ri- are lit from the right to the left exactly. as well. So yeah. um, on the right side first, and then the left. Uh, so the, there's that idea. 
and then the other thing that I, I don't do perfectly either all the time, but I try, is that so when I first go up to the the um, chancel area and then I turn around for the first time, I turn around to the right and then I'll turn back to the same side and turn around the whole service. I'll do this motion here and never make a full circle. But then after the benediction, so after I give the final benediction, I've been doing this the whole time, then I turn all the way to the right so it's a full circle to the right signifying the close of the service. So that's kind of a interesting factoid. Yeah. Um, so again, just these interesting little things um, having to do with the setup of the sanctuary and everything. Um, and the reason I brought all that up really is because of the re- where the readings are done does have some liturgical significance. So, all right. Any questions on that? All of that? No, this is a little bit off. But yeah, go ahead. Pastor Neil, when he was preaching, uh, he, he was shaking everybody's hand. So when he shook Justin's hand, he said, I'm going to show you a real handshake. <laughs> okay. And he uh, showed him the Christian handshake. Is that what it's called? I, I've never heard of this. You know Tell me more. Okay. So it was, it was, um, it was, uh, in the name of the Father, Father and then yes. the Son, and then the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. I've never seen that. No. Okay. Yes. <laughs> yes. I have to have Pastor Vanderbush show me. Uh, yeah, that's good. Um, yeah, and and sometimes we we learn things from each other like that because I. Yeah, there there's there are some things I learned in seminary in liturgical class, and there are some things that I learned from other churches and other pastors, right? That um, and reading other old books and stuff like that. So, but it is interesting. Uh, yeah, I gotta, I gotta, sh- I gotta learn that. So, there you go. <laughs> there you go. Um, all right, so let's move on then from the readings uh, to the creed. So, as you know, there are a couple different creeds that we use in church. Uh, one is the So we'll start from the simplest to the most complicated. The first is the Apostles' Creed. The second is the Nicene. And the third is the Athanasian. The Athanasian, being the longest and most complex, we only use once a year on, does anyone know, Trinity Sunday. And um, it's a great creed, but it's really long. It would be cumbersome to use every week, right? But it does very clearly confess the Trinity and the two persons in Christ. Um, The... Nicene Creed is the one that we use during divine service. And if you look at the difference between the Nicene and the Apostles, what, excuse me, one of the things you'll notice is that the Nicene Creed has a lot more information about the relationship of Jesus' divinity and his humanity and the fact that Jesus is truly divine, right? So in one Lord, this is the Nicene, in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of the Father, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. Right? None of that is in the Apostles' Creed. And so the reason that we use the Nicene in the divine service most often instead of the Apostles is because we're going to have communion. And... 
one of the things we're confessing when we can, when we have communion is that Jesus is true God, begotten of the Father, not made, one substance with the Father, true God and true man. And so to include that theology in our confession before we go and have the before we have communion, before we have the Lord's Supper, makes sense, right? Um, and so that that that's why we use the little bit more expanded one. Now the Apostles' Creed still important. The Apostles' Creed is the um, really the absolute basics of the Christian faith, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, creation, redemption, sanctification, um, and that is the creed that is taught in Luther's small catechism. That's the creed that's read at baptisms or, or recited at baptisms. Um, and that's the creed that we use for devotional purposes most often, right? So in at-home prayer, we have the Apostles' Creed, where in the divine service, we have the Nicene Creed. Yeah? Um, Derek Martin sent me, where in the Apostles' Creed, where is the Apostles' Creed found in the Bible in each statement? Oh, yeah. So I sent that to you. Oh, cool. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah, you can find these charts. I've seen these before. Um, sometimes in... I've been to Lutheran churches where in the bulletin they'll have that printed where next to each line of the creed they'll have a Bible reference, right, for um, at where, where every one of these statements of belief comes from in the Bible. So that's, that's good. Maybe we'll do that sometime. Um, so what else was I going to say about the creed? So uh, that's why we use what creeds where. The other thing about the creeds liturgically that is happening is remember something that we've talked about um, many times now with this idea of God esteemed. God's service, that the divine service, um, I have divine service here, is the divine serving us and then us serving God, right? Us serving God. Um, that there's a back and forth action between in the divine service that we are God is coming to us with his gifts and we're coming back to him with our prayers and praise. Well, this is what's going on with the creed is we just received God's word, right, in the readings and now we're confessing back to God what he has said to us about himself. Right? So there's a very natural back and forth there, right? Um we're confessing what he has said to us. Marcia. Which one, which creed was that when Martin Luther, Martin Luther went before the, the highest of the highest, whatever, that, front yeah. of him, that he used? Um, I don't remember just the film, you know, the movie that we went to see, and he goes before, he comes in front of all these, whatever they are, and he first introduces, do you remember? Yeah, so... Um, what he basically just gave a speech um, where he said, "This is my confession. Um, I, I'm not going to recant of the things I've taught. I can do no other. Here I stand." Um, that wasn't really a creed per se that he used. Um, later on, when the uh, when there was a when controversy continued and the Lutherans came to defend their theology, they read what's called the Augsburg Confession, which is in the Book of Concord. That might be what you're thinking of as well. Yeah, they read the, which is the confession given at Augsburg, which is in our confessional documents. So 
um, that's more like a creed because the creeds are also in our Book of Concord or our confessional documents. Yep. All right. Um, the other thing I wanted to point out about the creed is that sometimes um, people will bow or genuflect, that is to kneel, um, at certain parts in the Nicene Creed during the divine service. And sometimes I remember to do this and sometimes I don't. Again, um, I'm not perfect, but I'm just going to use a pencil here instead of marking this here. Um, so the traditional place to bow during the Nicene Creed, if you're looking on page 191 of your hymnal, is and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and then um, rising from that bowing or genuflecting at and was crucified. So uh, bowing at as and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and then rising at and was crucified. Now, the reason that that is a liturgical practice or the significance of that is that that's distinguishing between two things that we sometimes talk about when we talk about uh, Christology or the study of Christ, and that is his state of humiliation and his state of exaltation. So one of the things that we talk about when we talk about Jesus is that when he came to earth and he was incarnate and born of the Virgin Mary when he was born in a feeding trough as a little crying infant, that he was in a state of humiliation, that he was humble. And uh, you can look at Philippians 2 for this, that um, he did not count it. I'll just, I'll just read it for you, actually. So this is Philippians 2. This is called the Christ hymn. Your, this is starting at verse 5. Your attitude should be the same of that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God did not count it equality with God, something to be grasped, even though he was equal with God, right? But made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance as of a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient unto death, even death, on a cross, right? So that's the state of humiliation. But then we also recognize that he was glorified and then took on a state of exaltation in the death and resurrection. Therefore, God exalted him, this is verse 9, to the highest place and gave him the name above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, so if you look at the text of the creed there, and we said that we bow at as one and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man, that's that humiliation state, right? And then and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again from the scriptures and ascended to heaven. That's the state of exaltation. Now, it is funny to think that the cross, right, the crucifixion is part of the state of exaltation, not humiliation, right? Because he was humbled to the point of death, even death on the cross. Now, it's kind of both, 
And here's the thinking is that in John's gospel, uh, what does Jesus often call his crucifixion? The time has not come for the Son of Man to be, does anyone know? Glorified. Right? That Christ, when he talks about his crucifixion, he talks about it as the glorifying of Jesus. That Christ's glory is found in the fact that he would be so humble. And so the cross is this connecting point of the state of humiliation and the state of exaltation. And so traditionally, um, the, this bowing during the creed was to recognize his state of humiliation. And um, so we rise at and was crucified um, and, and bow at and, and, and was incarnate. So um, anyway, I try and uh, teaching this stuff. I know that now you've you've all said, now what are you going to do on Sunday? You're going to look for it, right? <laughs> so uh, this is actually good that I teach you because then I remember I need to do this stuff in the service. Um, but yeah, and but this isn't just something the pastor can do, by the way. So um, you're, you are free in the gospel, if you would like, um, to, to signify Jesus' humiliation and exaltation, to bow at these couple of lines in the creed. Um, and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, and was made man, and then rise and was crucified. Right. So, um, and let me actually just say something. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Steve. Uh, well, I was going to say for the Apostles' Creed, there's uh, maybe a place where we could do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that one line there, he descended into hell, uh, which seems like a pretty negative thing. But that's when it shows victory over the devil, right? So right, really exactly. Good. Yeah. It's a, it's a point of Yeah, no, that's a good point. Um, one of the things I wanted to say, which I'm, I'm sure I've probably kind of mentioned at this point before, but let me just be more explicit about it. When it comes to, um, you know, folding our hands, uh, bowing our heads, closing our eyes, sitting and standing bowing, kneeling, all of these things fall under something that we would call the uh, corporeal worship. And that's just a fancy way to say that our worship is uh, bodily, that we use our bodies in worship. And the reason that we do, the reason that we think about maybe we should bow here, maybe we should fold our hands here, maybe we should put our right hand over our left or our right thumb over our left thumb if we're going to fold our hands, maybe we should close our eyes, maybe we should stand, maybe we should sit. Um, all of these things, like Steve said, they're adiaphora. Nothing is commanded or forbidden in the scripture about them. But the reason that we do them is because it's engaging our body in worship, right? And Whenever you do anything, really, um, that you want to get a lot out of, it's important to do it in a way that engages every aspect of your life, right? So um, say I want to study something. Am I going to be more focused if I um, go to my office and I put on work clothes, and I uh, maybe I put on white noise or something in the background to cut out other extra noises, and 
um, I make sure that I get a good, good night's sleep the night before, and I open my books, and I begin to study, and I turn off my phone, and, um, and, I, walk, and I walk the door. Am I going to get more out of that kind of studying, or if I just roll out of bed, keep my sweatpants on, um, and go and try and casually read in the living room while the kids are running around? Right? Which am I going to get more out of? The first one, right? And that's because I'm doing things to to deliberately put myself in the position where I can get the most out of what I'm doing, right? The same is true with worship, right? And and we know this because we teach little kids this, right? When when we teach little kids how to pray, how do we teach them to pray? Bow your heads, close your eyes, fold your hands. Why do we teach them to fold their hands? So they don't punch their brother and sister, right? <laughs> Why do we teach them to to bow their heads out of reverence because they're praying to God the Father. Why do we teach them to close their eyes so they're not distracted by the things around them, right? Uh, So as adults, we shouldn't be above that. And when we engage our bodies in worship, that's what we're doing, right? Um, We're signifying things to ourselves about what we're doing and why we're here and what the importance of it is, right? that's that's why we do corporeal worship. That's why we sit and stand and stuff. And again, of course, all this is optional, right? If there's um, someone who's older and has bad knees and doesn't want to stand, you don't have to stand. That's fine. Um, that's absolutely fine. Uh, in fact, I don't want you to stand if you are older and have bad knees and uh, it, and it, and it hurt and you can't get up or what, or whatever. Um, I, I want you to be healthy and uh, of of course. But um, otherwise. Right, there's a reason that we think about things in this way. All right. Uh, that's my spiel on, on bodily worship. I've, maybe I think I forgot to give that one earlier. Okay, so then we did the creeds. Next is the hymn of the day, and uh, sometimes known as the sermon hymn. And Lutheranism 101 correctly tells us here, this is the principal hymn of the divine service. So unlike the other hymns, so the... The way this works is that um, in the in the big pastor book that I use to organize worship and in Lutheran Service Builder on the computer, there's uh, assigned hymns of the day for each Sunday. So say this uh, – I, I can't even remember what it was this last Sunday. What, does anyone remember what the hymn of the day was this last Sunday? Oh, um, I know. It is what is the world to me? Right, so Trinity Nine, um, Trinity Nine, the hymn of the day is "What Is the World to Me," which is a great hymn, by the way, one of my favorites. And no matter what, on Trinity Nine every year, that's that's the hymn of the hymn of the day. What is the world to me? The other hymns the pastor picks, right? So, or the person organizing the worship, um, whoever that is, normally the pastor. So, opening hymn, communion hymns, closing hymn. Those are all picked every year. They change. But the hymn of the day is assigned along with the readings. And it's normally very much connected to the readings. Now, again, of course, if you look at the dating of hymns, you know this has been developed over time because What is the World to Me was written, I think, like in the 1600s. So obviously before 1600, Trinity 9, people used different hymns, um, of course. But... Uh, again, this is kind of that snowball of liturgical tradition that we talked about that over time people add to the traditions of the church 
And the idea of having an assigned hymn of the day is one of these traditions that stuck. And I think it's very good because then you know what happens over a number of years is you have about 52 hymns that you know really well that are really good hymns, right? Um, because you at least sing them that, that one time that Sunday that year. So, and hope. It's, it's also, it seems good to me that we know that other like Lutherans are doing the same thing. Right. Yeah, the at the majority thing. of LCMS churches that are using the one year lectionary across song. America are singing that same song that at that time on Sunday. Yeah, that's a really nice. A nice thing as well. Um, so that's the hymn of the day. And um, the next thing, uh, that's all I really have to say about the hymn of the day. Any questions on the hymn of the day? Um, in that picture, I think you left out the communion rail. That's, I did leave out the communion rail. You're <laughs> correct. We have a communion rail now. There we go. Um, we need to move the baptismal font. There we go. All right. All right. Now it's all messed up. <laughs> Everything's off. Um, all right. The next, the next thing is the sermon. And uh, the sermon is very simple in one way. What the sermon is doing is, in, in other ways, it's, it's the most complicated thing. But what the sermon is doing is it's simply applying the readings that you just heard to your life, right? It's the the pastor who's been called to this word and sacrament ministry to preach that word into your life. And um, it's it's complicated in that that's not an easy task, right? But um, we did I, – I don't need to go too much into it because if you remember, I did go through a whole thing on the sermon – a while back in Lutheranism 101, um, so you can find that podcast. But uh, th- there's one main rule in Lutheran preaching, and that is if you read all the old Lutheran homileticians, you read Luther, uh, you read Walther, they they all say basically the main rule is this, preach the text. right? You take that the text that you're preaching on and you apply that text, you use that text, and you, and you apply it to... To the hearers, um, and I had a professor at seminary who he his main he he <laughs> I remember I I had finished my first homiletics class my first preaching class and so in seminary you can't give a public sermon until you pass your first preaching class and I had finished passed it and I was like yeah I'm going to be preaching this. Wednesday at this Lent midweek service for the first time, and he was like, he said, um, his his piece of one piece of advice was forget everything you just learned in that class, and say something, <laughs> right? Because this is this is the temptation is that uh, especially as a new preacher, you want to say everything, and um, you want to say every theological thought you've ever had in your life and <laughs> show how smart you are, but um, the, the main thing that the sermon is supposed to do is it's supposed to have a point that it's trying to make based on the text that is applied to the life of the hearer. So that's what I try and do, and um, I think that's the, the main thing to know about Lutheran preaching. I did want to say one other thing about the sermon, and um, 
there is an option. I don't know how traditional or not traditional it is, uh, but I do know that a lot of LCMS preachers do it, which is um, to uh, use something called the, well, there's kind of a, a common introduction that is placed at the beginning of a lot of sermons that is the kind of Pauline introduction to a, one of his letters where he's, where Paul will often say something along the lines of grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. A lot of p- preachers begin their sermons that way. I don't, um, and I'll tell you why in a second. And then also what's called the votum at the end of the sermon, um, which is, from Philippians, may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, so on and so forth. Um, and that's that's kind of the trad, um, or what a lot of people use as the introduction and outro or conclusion to their to their sermon. And I I personally don't use those. Um, I don't know if I have a good reason. <laughs> So maybe this is disappointing. Maybe you really like that. But my, my, my reason for not including the, the kind of Pauline introduction, um, grace, mercy, and peace to you, is not because I don't want grace, mercy, and peace to be to you. But normally I'm trying to set whatever the tone of the sermon is going to be in the introduction. And um, I feel like that kind of flattens the introduction to the same thing every Sunday, where I want the first thing to come out of my mouth to set the tone for the rest of the sermon. So that's that's my reason for not using the introduction. Um, my reason for not using the votum is, uh, again, I think because it just kind of, to me, seems unnatural that I've ended the sermon where I've ended it. And, I'm, and I normally do kind of include some sort of doxology um, at the end. Um, but I let it. I I, I kind of want it to flow naturally out of whatever it is I just said uh, to conclude the sermon, and so uh, I I tend to say something along the lines of like to him be all the honor and glory now and forever. Um, a little simpler, uh, but I I so those are the theological reasons. The practical reason is because. Um, my vicarage supervisor didn't use those things, and that's where I really cut my teeth on preaching, is in that church. So that's the other reason. But um, I I know that people have asked me before, why don't you do this? Other preachers do this. So I thought I'd include that as well. But if you like really want me to, then I just you know complain enough, and I'll do it. Um, but. Throw some jokes in. Okay. Yeah. Uh, sometimes not everyone enjoys my sense of humor, which is so. That's it is what it is. But uh, yeah, that's fine. I'll try and be funnier. Um, Just tell it. This is a funny joke. Yeah. You are supposed to laugh. It is funny uh, sometimes. Some of us laugh. So I yeah I know. I know who laughs and who doesn't. Sometimes uh, jokes land here and then they don't land at Oxford, or jokes will land at Oxford and not land here. So yeah. it's it's kind of interesting. Yeah, they, they wouldn't understand about the brown chairs. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Are they keep going on now? Yeah. Sorry. 
just like, he would like to learn about theology, please. Uh, okay, so the next two things are the um, offertory and the offering. And uh, the offertory is, um, again, our, this kind of back and forth. The sermon is one of these gifts from God, um, you know, if it's a good sermon. It's, it's one of these ways in which God is coming to you in his word. And then the offertory, um, when we reply in song, so this is on page 192 in the hymnal. 192 and 193 is this singing of praise back to God, right? And uh, there are two traditional psalms that are sung as the offertory, and we have them in setting one and setting three. So setting three has Psalm 51, creating me a clean heart, O God. And then setting one has Psalm 116, which is on page... Starts on page 159. What shall I render to all the Lord for all His benefits to me? I'll offer a sacrifice of Thanksgiving. And we've actually been do we've stuck with setting three, but we've been singing the setting one offertory the last couple weeks. I don't know if you've noticed that. Okay, so um, those are the two traditional ones, and I I like both of them. Um, I really like Psalm 116 um, in the way that it's connected to both the offering. Um, that we're offering a sacrifice, right? So we're giving to the Lord. And then the also connection to communion that's coming, right? Uh, what shall I render to the Lord? I will take the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I like that a lot too. So um, I kind of prefer 116, but I also like 51 too. So whatever, that that is what it is. Um, those are interchangeable. Um, those have both been used traditionally for a long time, Um so one's not more traditional than the other. Um, but that's the offertory. And then the offering, of course, is... Uh, so the offering is one of these sacrificial acts, liturgically, where we are giving something to God. And, the, and in this sense, we're literally giving to the ministry of the church our, our money, right? Um, and that's an important thing. Now, one of the things that I really like with the offering liturgically is that the um, when the plates are brought up, normally whoever the you know the acolyte or the elder or the pastor whoever is receiving the plates is will um, turn around and hold them up um, as a sacrifice to the Lord, right? And then mm-hmm. then put them off to the side before you know Marcia comes and counts the money, and. <laughs> Uh, there's a kind of nice significance in that, that the gifts of the congregation are coming up to God. And then when when people receive communion, right, some of the things literally, the bread and the wine that was literally bought with that money now comes back as this divine gift of God, right? So you actually get this um, transition or this transformation of, the gifts that have been brought forward as a sacrifice to God, God then sends us, um, using those things, his body and blood, right? Which is kind of a beautiful thing. So um, I, I, I really like that little act of lifting up the plates and then um, those things coming back to us. All right, so that's the offertory and offering. Um, we also have at this point, 
Did, did Steve, did you have something, that question? No, you were okay. talking about Psalm 151, and just after that, we had that as a psalm reading. So oh, yeah, we had Psalm, yeah, Psalm 151. Right. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Went down the wrong pipe. All right. So uh, we also have at this point in our church, not in every church and not in the hymnal, is the sharing of the peace, <coughs> which I think we've already talked about a little bit. But um, you'll notice in the, in your hymn in your bulletins, I mean, there's a little explanation of the sharing of the peace and the there's a couple bible verse references there that one is from matthew 5 that if you have a problem with your brother before when you're offering your gift at the altar leave your gift there at the altar and go and first be reconciled with your brother before you offer your gift and um new testament christians have always taken that to mean that before you receive communion before you receive before you take the cup of salvation right psalm 116 that you should be reconciled with the people you're communing with. So if you have a problem with someone in the congregation, that the sharing of the peace is this time to to go and uh, reconcile with your brother, right? And um, that's why we literally say, the peace of the Lord be with you, right? That it's not just a holy howdy. It's supposed to be this, this literal sharing of the peace. The other thing is that the early church um, recorded in the Bible had had a tradition of what was called the kiss of peace, now, from early church documents, what we know about that is that, and this is not what we do at the church, but that the uh, men would kiss men and the women would kiss women because uh, there didn't want to be any kind of kind of image of any kind of adultery, right, going on. Um, but it was on the lips. And uh, my favorite quote is: "There's this early church father that says." If you see any men kissing each other too long, you should probably kick them out before communion. Uh, we don't want any of that. So, anyway, that's what the kiss of peace was. I like that we just do handshakes now. You know, that's fine. Uh, we we don't need to, to all be kissing each other all the time. So, um, but but that that is where that comes from. So, um, you know, some people. Uh, well, anyway, it doesn't matter. I, I won't get into all that, but um, that's where the sharing of the peace comes from. So um, then uh, we have the prayer of the church af- after that. And uh, the prayer of the church. Okay, the, commu- the, the hymnal doesn't say a lot about it. But uh, if you go back to that Acts 2 definition of church, this is one of the main parts, right? So you have the apostles' teaching, that's the preaching. You have the breaking of the bread, that's communion. You have fellowship, gathering together. And then you have, what's the last thing? The prayers, right? You have prayers. And so the prayers of the church where we have this time, we already had the one big prayer earlier on, the collect of the day, right? Which is more thematic about that Sunday, but now we have the the prayers of the church, um, where we pray for basically all the stuff going on in the congregation. Now this is um, oh, one thing I wanted to point out actually first before we get into the prayers themselves is um, no never mind that that comes later that comes later sorry I got I got confused um, so the prayers of the church 
Um, there's a couple interesting things about this. So the prayers of the church have traditionally been the dividing line between the, and this is why they are where they are in the, the service, between the service of the word and the service of the sacrament. So we're kind of wrapping up our discussion of the service of the word here, and then next next week we'll get into the service of the sacrament. The prayers come right in the middle. And um, in the early church, what they would do is, um, in their practice of closed communion, instead of having everyone stick around during communion um, if they weren't going to commune, is that if there were catechumens there, if there were people there that were um, in basically in confirmation class to be able to receive communion, that but they weren't communing yet, they would leave after the prayers and go do their catechism class while the rest of the church had communion. Okay, so this is um, the the that was kind of the traditional way of doing closed communion. So sometimes people think today I'm um, that closed communion is rude to to people, but um, it's really a lot less rude than it used to be because we used to just kick people out. <laughs> uh, so for whatever that's worth, um, we don't ask people to leave the church anymore. So. Uh, Well, I'm not. Then maybe they would keep. I'm not sure exactly how it worked. They might have um, kind of started, and then uh, church might be getting out at some point while they're still doing class. I'm not sure, but um, yeah, that's just how they did it. So um, the other interesting thing about that uh, is that this was also there, there, and I know of two churches in the LCMS that still do this that I've attended. Um, the prayers of the church, or right before the prayers of the church, was also the traditional time for announcements. Yes. So, um, did you grow up with that, no, or have you seen Holy, that? Holy Cross did it. Where during the middle of the ser- sermon, they'd have people come up and make the announcements and stuff. Yeah. So sometimes they'd be like right at the end of the sermon, before the prayers of the church, or something like that. But the idea was that part of the announcements you might be making is for people who need our prayers. Right, so you might announce, "Hey, this person's in the hospital. This person died. Um, whatever." And, and then, and then we're going to go pray for these people, right? So um, that that's just an interesting factoid. Um, I don't, I don't think it matters when you do the announcements, but um, that's an interesting factoid that the, the traditional time for announcements was was at the prayers of the church. Um, the other thing to say about the prayers of the church is that. Um, Traditionally, they were an ordinary, not a proper. That is, that they would stay the same every week and not change week to week. And um, this is something that the LCMS is kind of divided on in this way, is that some churches use the same prayers of the church every week, and then some churches change them week to week. Uh, we kind of do something in the middle. I, I kind of alternate, so I'll use the same prayers for like a couple months, and then we'll change or sometimes I'll change them week to week. Um, kind of just depends on how I'm feeling. Uh, and I started out with preachers. You pray for the preachers first, and then the, the government, and, and that. Yeah, yeah, so there's like a, there's like kind of a list of things that you pray for. So um, it's in the, the, unfortunately, there's not one in the hymnal, but in the altar book, there's a couple different options if you want to just use a general set of prayers every week, that's the same prayers. 
Then the um, Office of Worship at the International Center of the LCMS, they also publish weekly ones as well if you want to use those. Or the pastor can write him, them himself, which I basically never do because I figure that the ones that have been around forever are probably better than the ones I would write. So, um, But uh, that is kind of interesting that so- sometimes uh, – or they that they used to be basically an ordinary. They were no matter where you went, it's kind of the same set of prayers. And then now they're more of a proper where they change. They tend to change more week to week. But um, anyway, that just is what it is. I don't think it matters much. So uh, I like uh, my favorite ones that we do is we use the litany during Lent, um, which I think is really nice. The um, which the litany was written by Saint John Chrysostom who's an early church father. Um, and and the litany is in the hymnal if you want to see the litany. It's on page... Maybe... Yeah, page 287. So that's the prayers we use during, during Lent is the litany. You'll recognize it when you see it. Page 288. Page 288 in the hymnal. So, O Lord, have mercy. O Christ, have mercy. O Lord, have mercy. God the Father in heaven, have mercy. God the Son, redeem the world. From all sin, from all error, from all evil. That one. So, I really like that one. Um, all right, that's the prayers of the church. Any final questions, comments on any of that? Yeah, you should do that. That's the right thing to do. Okay. All right, any other questions or comments? The, the litany, the morning and evening prayers, there is something like Luther's uh, prayers. Oh. Yeah, you're on the other page, responsive prayer too. Yeah, I, I misspoke. It's page 288 is what I meant. But yeah. No, you're good. All right. All right. Let's, uh, speaking of prayers, let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for this time together. Uh, we thank you that uh, you have preserved the divine service throughout history, that we may come to you on Sundays and worship in spirit and in truth and receive your gifts and respond in prayer and praise. And we pray that you would continue to preserve these gifts among us, that we may grow closer to you and in the knowledge of your Son, Jesus Christ. Through the same Jesus Christ, we pray, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.